Hello, hello. It's another episode of the Listening Podcast with Sean and Jake. Uh, we are on episode 17 now, Jake. We're probably you like noticed? juniors in high school. We are looking at colleges right now. Graduation's coming up. It is. And you know what I've noticed? Um, the past three, four episodes, you'll say we're on episode blank now. Jake, that's actually that's like the cadence every week. So if listeners go back and listen to the first the minute of every of of every episode, and you'll hear that. You know what? We'll do a supercut of, of you doing that every single episode where I do that in. I recently did that with the Bill Simmons podcast. I went back just to hear if it's the same every time. Dude, he's pretty consistent with his intros. Bill Simmons, big friend of the pod. Big friend, yeah. B- big mentor of the pod, just kind of like a godfather figure taking us under his wing. Yeah, no you know. big deal. Big shout to Bill. Thanks for all the help. Uh, so on episode 17, we are going to be talking about the best opening tracks of all time. So this is actually something Jake and I talk a lot about. We talk about <laughs> like track numbers and track orders yeah. and we thought naturally we should have a podcast discussion about the best songs that open up albums i feel like we could have a podcast about track lists in general i feel like we could have a podcast about like third songs on albums mm. fourth songs on albums closers middle tracks the problem is where there's some differences in track listings like how do you compare a 17th track on an album to an album that only has seven or eight. Right. So it's hard to do. But I think with openers, that's a universal thing. I'm openers and closers. You always got to have one that starts and one that ends. So that is, that is, uh, I think that's the law of, of physics, isn't that's it? That's Murphy's Law. Yeah. I think that's one of those two. Oh, no. I'm referring to, to the Murphy Lee album, Murphy's Law. <laughs> oh, I, I, I haven't given that one a listen. Anyways, what we're going to do is. Best album openers, and then we're going to follow that up at a later date, maybe in a couple weeks, maybe in a month, with best album closers as well. So we're going to hit on both of those. Uh, So before we dive into the best opening tracks of all time, we wanted to talk about a little bit of news. So the first one is that Dive, a band that we've talked about a few different times on the podcast, uh, they've canceled a portion of their tour. Uh, What do you make of this, Jake? Well, it said... In the tweets and like half of a story that I read, that it was medical emergency that um, has prevented the tour from carrying on. And I guess the worry there um, is that, you know, Dive, all of the members, I think, and, and Zachary Cole Smith, the lead, the lead singer and, and sort of songwriter, um, also, they've had some trouble, trouble with drug addiction. Um, and so you you got to hope that that's not really what is causing this. I don't, but I, I don't want to speculate. They kept it pretty vague. Yeah, and I think that might be one of the reasons why people are kind of conspiracy theories are flying everywhere is because they've had a past history of this addiction, drug abuse. Um, his new album is a, about the recovery process. So it would suck if he ended up um, relapsing. Of course. You know, it could be it could be literally anything. Well, but it it almost does seem like the reason to keep it so vague is like because it's something that would not sound very good, right? But again, it could you know who knows if it's like a disease or some kind of <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not crying. I had something in my throat. <laughs> Start choking up for Zach Cole Smith. <laughs> Obviously, I hope he's fine, but I'm not quite moved to tears. But um, <laughs> but you you know you hope it's not some medical like a serious medical emergency, right. like someone has a disease or something. But I feel like usually that's a little bit more transparent. You know what I mean? In the way people talk about it, like if it were God forbid something like cancer or something, you know, I feel like that's something that they say. You know I mean, you come out and say something like that. I don't know. Let me ask you this: If 
he didn't have this past history, or the band in general didn't have this past history. Is this a story that they cancel a portion of their tour, or is this just a normal, oh, they're suffering from exhaustion, or they or they have like bronchitis or something like strep throat? Well, it definitely wouldn't be as big a story, right? Because you have to imagine that plays a factor. I mean, because there is that assumption that that's there. I think it would still be a story. I think every time like a a band that is of some kind of fame cancels a tour or a portion of their tour um they uh you know that that becomes a story this actually brings me back to 2006 when um like a week or a couple days before Aerosmith was coming to the Verizon Wireless in Manchester young Jake was very excited to go to the show we had like good tickets canceled canceled the 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 rest of the tour right before they were coming mm, to Manchester similar thing Steven happened. Tyler throat issue similar thing happened to me Got free tickets to go see Kings of Leon a couple years ago. Uh, Their drummer broke his ribs or shoulder or something, and they had to cancel as well. So yeah, you really, never you never like to see that happen because like this is their livelihood as well. Yeah. This is where they make a lot of their money. So that kind of sucks. I just think it's irresponsible to ever get injured when you have fans <laughs> out there. You're letting them down. You're letting them down. How dare you break your <laughs> ribs or wrist or whatever? Like you can't play hurt. Athletes do it all the time. Yeah. What you can't drum with two bum wrists? I guess not. I guess not. Uh, the other piece of news that we had is that LCD Sound System just had their first reunion show in New York City. So they're playing a lot of festivals coming up this summer. I think Lollapalooza among them. Uh, so they've been playing some smaller venues, or the plan is to play some smaller venues. Uh, so I guess tickets were in very high demand for this show. They were they were reselling for like four or five hundred dollars. Right. Um, I think I saw Aziz Ansari Instagramming some pictures from the venue. So this seemed to be like a big event. Yeah. However, I'm getting the impression from music Twitter and just kind of people in general that there might be the tiniest hint of a backlash against LCD sound system? Well, I think part of the reason is, like, it's what you just described, where if you're really doing it for the fans, you might want to take a couple precautions to make sure it's not just, like, bougie celebrities who are the ones who get to go, and it's not this, like, upper-crusty exclusive experience. It's what it came across as. It's what it comes across as, right. And, and you know, on a reunion tour that already feels somewhat disingenuous, already feels a little bit cash-grabby or a little bit, like... Um, maybe you never needed to stop in the first place. Um, yeah, that's not a good look, obviously, for, for, for James Murphy. No, and I don't think that's their intention at all. I think they have really good intentions with this, but yeah. I think maybe be a little more aware of how this is coming across to the to, to average Joe music fan. Right, to average Jake and Sean music fan. You know, where were we? <laughs> where, where were our tickets to the venue? Why wasn't I sitting next to Aziz you could, Instagramming? Yeah. These are the, all the questions that I think he'll I want be, answers from James Murphy himself. Well, well, these are the questions that the media will press him on. You know, why, where was Sean? Where was Jake at this show? You know, uh, if Aziz was there, certainly you would think if yeah. if hey, one was there, the hey, other would be there. You know, Aziz is a big friend of the pod, huge friend of the pod. He's come on a couple times. Yeah, we we talked soundtrack choice on Master of None, of course. You can go back in the archives; that episode's there. Uh, yeah, so LCD. Reunion. I don't have a lot else to say other than they might be, pun intended, losing their edge here in terms of goodwill with the the general public and in music writers. I can see that too. Don't have much of a take. I'm ready to move on. Yeah, because we've we've talked about this. We have. And, and like what we've said before is basically it just again it feels not totally 
genuine, I guess. And like, I don't have a real bone to pick with LCD sound system. Like, I haven't actually really listened to them much. I like, I like some of their hits and stuff like that. And I feel like that's that's like everyone. They're like, yeah, I like them. I don't know why they get this like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they get this much attention. I I mean, like, I've heard their albums are really good. They're I, like good. Let's okay. not. I see. I that, that I think that's my problem with all this is I think. LCD sound system gets a little oversold as like this ultimate indie act. Like, how are they headlining like Lollapalooza or Coachella? Why is this happening? You know, that I'm not totally sure. Maybe they're actually brilliant marketers. That seems Think, to be the case. It's what it comes across as. Like, this certainly demonstrates that they have a pretty adept hand at like making spin and like creating buzz about. Like stories related to them. You want to hear something else interesting too, and this goes back to their ability to create spin. Is remember that movie they came out with? Yeah. Leading up to their last concert. What was it called again? Uh, I I actually usually know the name, and I can't remember it. I don't remember. But anyways, I was listening to a podcast that Chuck Klosterman was on. He's of course a big music writer, famous music critic. Yeah. Shut up and play the hits. Shut up and play the name of the documentary. So. During this documentary, there's a scene in a restaurant where Chuck Klosterman is interviewing James Murphy. And they it came across as like a genuine, like this is a, an actual interview. Apparently, this he had already interviewed him months before, and this interview ended up being all staged. Yeah. And they're like, can you just interview him like you interviewed him before? And then look like you're scribbling in your notebook a little bit. And Klosterman in this podcast was just like, it was really weird. He was like, like, it was like, I was playing a version of myself, and it's weird to to be, you know, to be filmed and to be playing a version of you. It's a, it's a peculiar sort of experience, you know, in, in his Klosterman way. I listened to the same thing, and I totally thought, like, that seems really, really forced and fake. Dude, I was surprised and, by that. And, like, I was, and I wasn't surprised. By the way, amazing Klosterman. Oh, jeez. <laughs> right there. Thanks. I was surprised, and I wasn't. I was like, this doesn't seem like something, like, a cool indie band like LCD would do. But at the same time, they've spent, it's seemingly their entire lifespan as a band doing this sort of thing and, and as someone who hasn't listened to them a ton from an objective outsider point of view i can say that they seem like one of those bands who's a little bit more flash than substance yeah. a little bit more style than than to- like than what there really is there underneath the style and the flash and you know what no one seems to be willing to call them on this. Maybe we're the Crusaders. I shouldn't be, though, because having not listened to them, maybe I'm not qualified. <laughs> I've listened to the hits, you know what I mean? I think everyone's, play the hits. I think everyone's a little afraid to come at the crowd, <laughs> to come at the LCD sound system crowd, because all the other, they're afraid that they're going to get backlash from all the other fans. Because I feel like everyone's just like, I don't fully get it with them, and they're afraid someone's going to call them on it. You when might- almost everyone I've talked to is just like, yeah, they're good. I don't love them, though. You know what it might be is like one of those things where like an idea to go do something starts in a group of friends, and you don't really want to do it, but you're like, okay, everyone's excited, so I'll go That's along right. with it. And then you realize when you start talking to everybody, like between the five, six, seven, eight of you, you're like, oh, no one else wants to do this either. It's really just one or two people. And then that a coup starts and an uprising, and it never happens. That's right. So maybe that's maybe we're actually just at ground zero of this, and we're gonna find out that people don't like LCD quite as much I, as they say. I'm said. gonna uh, hot, uh, listen in podcast hot take right now. Hot okay. magma take coming. I'm, I'm ready. In six months time. <laughs> After the festival dates, after we get some new music from LCD, when the album starts, the new album starts to maybe be coming out, 
it's not going to be the the critical they're not going to be the critical darlings they once were i guarantee you that there's going to be more and more lcd backlash and we're on the in on the ground floor book it right now it is Mar- it's the end of march march 29th you'll probably be listening to this march 30th when, or whenever book it right now lcd you have a finite amount of time at the top of the mountain that is that is a, a magma hot take and i'm actually just excited that you said the phrase in 6 months time mm-hmm. Because that's a fun way to phrase something like that. Because you don't need time in there. No. You could just say in six months. Right. But in six months' time... It gives it more gravitas. Sean, in two seconds' time, I think we should move on. I agree. One, two. All right. So we are talking best album openers of all time. Very exciting. So I think what what I want to start out talking about is just album openers in general. Um, The main thing that I wanted to highlight is the fact that a lot of the best records of all time seem to start with an absolute fire track. Whether it be the quote-unquote best song on the album or lead single of the album or one of the best. It always seems like that first song is really, really important if you want to have a classic record. Totally agreed. Um, And I think, like we were saying, there's a couple different types of first tracks. And I think that is my favorite one. The, The first one you mentioned, which is like the first song on an album that is... Also, it's maybe best or one of its best songs. And so what part of the thing we talked about is that, um, and when we were getting ready to do the show, is that there's others, there's like the intro track. That's sometimes less fun to think about. And then there's an interesting discussion of is that really the first track or is that in conjunction with track two, the first track? Then, you know, there's sort of the misleading first one. But in terms of songs that just kick off an album with a bang and are like one of the better songs, I mean... I'm trying to think of like some of my favorites. I think the, so, the ultimate is. I, go ahead. I think the conversation. Ooh, that's a good cliffhanger. The ultimate is, and I think I'm going to say it. I think the conversation can almost begin and end with one song, and it's like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. That's where I was going. That's where I was this going. This is a song that is wildly considered one of the best of all time, and it opens up one of the best albums of all time yeah. in Highway 61 Revisited. So this is a song that. I mean, the backstory on this song is endless, and I, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with it by now. We don't need to rehash it here, but the way that this song opens up with the organ and the guitar the snare and the snare, yeah, it's amazing. And no matter how many times you've heard it, every time you hear it again, you're you, you get wrapped up in that same energy. So I looked up. Because there's a quote where I, when one of the when I was first getting into Bob Dylan, I read and it was Bruce Springsteen talking about Dylan. Obviously, Steen takes a lot out of the Dylan playbook. And I, if this quote is correct, this sounds like the one I read. He said that like the snare shot that starts the song. He says it's this that snare shot that sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind. That's what that's the way he described it, and that's sort of what it. it that's a little dramatic. But it's obviously, it's an amazing song. And like, so to me, what is it going on on Like a Rolling Stone is you have an artist reaching their peak. You have Dylan at his sort of ultimate powers as a songwriter. You got Dylan in his all-time angry phase. He's pissed at the folk scene. He's pissed at all of his, you know, all the malcontent folkies who, who wrote him off after he dared to make a stylistic shift and go electric. Um, and also, so you have him at his songwriting peak. You have him at all-time fuck you mode just like out to show the world. You also have him going electric with this band and the perfect sort of collection of the sound, the aesthetic, the way it's recorded. It's a little messy. You can hear the organ messing up. You can hear the piano messing up. It sounds to- like really organic. I think it was only a couple takes. And it's just also 
all of that combined with it being this really, really well-written, composed song with just awesome lyrics and, like, this redemptive chorus, um, everything comes together on Like a Rolling Stone. It absolutely does. And I, I, I think that is probably my favorite opening track ever. I mean, the ones that we're about to get into, though, let's not discount those because I think another track that is kind of up there for the classic from an album. It smells like Teen Spirit yeah. from Nevermind by Nirvana. That's another one where very recognizable opening with that riff, the like the the, the strumming on that where it starts out. Yeah, with, with that riff, with, like quiet, and yeah. then you you know you kick into oh, yeah. the to the fuzzed out riff. On the that. Dave Grohl drums kick in, and then um, I because when I listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit now, I crank it a lot of times. Like in the spring, when I'm when I'm feeling spring coming on, I'll grab Nevermind, my CD. I'll put push it in my car, I'll put it in my CD player in my car. I'll crank it like all the way up, and I get so like enthused when that riff kicks in, and you hear Nova Selleck's bass like roll in on the yep. when it when they finally get heavy. That song is incredible, and it's interesting thing here. Like Rolling Stone and um, Smells Like Teen Spirit both kick off albums that are borderline unimpeachable in terms yeah. of just like song for song, pretty perfect. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other type of first song where like just the first song is pretty incredible. The album maybe doesn't live up. These are both examples of all-time great songs that lead off all-time great albums. And I, I have another couple examples in that same category. You I'd met, like to hear those examples. You, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, Thunder Road kicking off Born to Run Incredible. is like a perfect mission statement for that album and where it's all about this idea of like being young, like going out, just going wherever, you know, the night or the road may take you and just this kind of free, free thinking theme. And the interesting thing I think about Born to Run is that, and saying the title gives what my point is away, but if you think about Highway 61 Revisited by Dylan, you're immediately thinking of Like a Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. If you think about Nevermind by Nirvana, you can't help but think about Smells Like Teen Spirit. Born to Run's an exception. Thunder Road as the opener, obviously it's emblematic of the album. It's an incredible song, but you'd be lying to yourself if you didn't say... Like, you you could have convinced me if I weren't a Springsteen fan at all yet. If I had never listened to the album and you just said, yeah, like, Born to Run is a good opener because that starts off that album, I would have believed you. That's right. But I know, yeah, Thunder Road kicks it off. And it's, it's, it's interesting there. Like, what I think is interesting to get into is what is that creative choice? Because I know. there's so much about, you know, do you want to kick an album off? Is, is part of the decision, like, if you know an album's really, really strong, if you know it's going to be a Highway 61, if you just can tell, like, if you're Kurt Cobain and you're like, okay, this is a really good batch of songs, you can't knock any of them, let's start with the best one, and then and people will just continue to be impressed. Or is there this part of a decision where you want to save some of the better for last? Because I think the powerhouse in a lot of albums is, like, the third, fourth track. Mm -hmm. That's the case with Born to Run, right? Mm -hmm. the, the song Born to Run is fourth, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Middle of the lineup? Yeah. Bet and clean up like David Ortiz. Actually, no, it's fifth. It's fifth. It's, it's, it's similar. Yeah. Technically on the back half of that album. Really Because it's only eight tracks long. Really but, interesting. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that um, Thunder Road is a good example. And also, uh, you know, like a song like Seven Nation Army on uh, Elephant is another one where like that is, again, it's like arguably the White Stripes' greatest album. And it's arguably their most recognized, most popular song. I mean, I think you could probably make that argument about Like a Rolling Stone. You could make that argument about Certainly Smells Like Teen Spirit and definitely Seven Nation Army. It's like these sort of, like, 
mission statements, but they also really hold up in- incredibly well as songs. Exactly. And I think another one is Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys yeah. from Pet Sounds. This yep. is another song where if you play it, people know it more as a just just a Beach Boys single or song then they think about it in the context of that album. And I think that is the case with all of those songs that we just said, where the first thought is, oh, this is just a great song by itself. Not necessarily, oh, yeah, this was on Nevermind in 1990. Well, maybe a lot of people do think that. But I think particularly for a song like Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys, they're not thinking, oh, this was on Pet Sounds. Yeah. Or, you know, Seven Nation Army. People aren't like, oh, this is on, this kicks off Elephant. Yeah, no, those are big hits. Like, those are huge hits. And I actually would agree with you about Smells Like Teen Spirit. That is a little bit more of a moment album where Mm -hmm. everyone seems to remember, like, where they were when whatever Nevermind came out. But still... I think your average like music fan, maybe they're not thinking about the fact that this is like the start of Nevermind. And I think Wouldn't It Be Nice is a great example. Um, and there is something to be said about... Cause, and like again, I want to get into some of these songs that aren't huge hits too. Like I'm looking at, at this list we've sort of we've so drafted I, up. I, I think it's helpful if we, if we kind of break it into those categories. So we, sure. we have the one where it's like, okay, these are big hits, really, really recognizable songs. I think the next one to start talking about are ones that are kind of a, they set the tone for the album in kind of like an artistic or stylistic way. And I have a good example to kick that off. And I, I, so it's it's Dark Fantasy on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. So this may or may not be one of your favorites. I feel like the most well-known songs on, on that album by Kanye West are probably Runaway and like Power. Monster as well. Monster, Power, and, and Runaway. Dark Fantasy... That's what it's called, right? Or is it Twisted Fantasy? My beautiful. Uh, uh, the first song. Star- oh, dark, dark, dark fantasy. fantasy. Yeah, it like is a perfect tone setting song, and it's also like no knock on the song itself. That's more of in the Thunder Road camp, <clears throat> where like you have this song that's this perfect encapsulation of the sounds you're going to be hearing, sort of the tone they're going for, and it feels like an appetizer in the best way. But it's still this fully fleshed out song, and that actually gets to what I wanted to bring up, which is that sometimes with openers, there's this tendency, if you've listened to a ton of albums and you are ingrained in the culture of there's an intro, because a lot of albums have like an intro track, sometimes a first song can get a little overlooked by some people. Because you're like, oh, this is sort of the intro. They're warming up, whatever. Sometimes if you look back, you're like, oh, that song really wasn't an intro. That like that song is like four minutes long. That's three minutes long. That's a full song. I wonder if there's something to that. And I think um, that songs in this camp are more likely to be interpreted in that way. They kind of serve as like a, you know what I mean? Like Yeah, they are. And uh, there's two that I'm, I'm thinking of. One is Plain Song by The Cure. And the other one oh, right, is yeah. Everything in Its Right Place by Radiohead. These are two songs that, in my opinion, set a mood and kind of an, an aesthetic for what the album is going to end up being. So on both of these songs, you you have like long stretches of like just instrumentals, and it's really setting the scene for what you're going to be hearing thematically throughout the rest of the album. Like on, on Everything in Its Right Place, that gives you a real sense of what Radiohead's going for. It's very yeah. like electronic and almost cold in a way. It does. It feels cold. It feels like robotic. It feels very... And it only gets more so with the second track with Kid A, and I think those, and it's e- it's kind of easing you into that. Those songs are an excellent example where I hear a song like Plain Song, or I hear a song like Everything in Its Right Place, and the first few times I listen to the album, it does have this this vibe of like this is them warming you up, this is them getting you ready, 
But as, the more and more you listen, you sort of start to appreciate these songs as the songs they are. Yeah. Like, like, because I think there's a tendency, especially when you listen, like I said, to as many albums as like I think someone like we do, you get used to what bands try to do with with songs in their in their batting order. You know yeah. what I mean? And you have someone out the first song sometimes is there to sort of like you said set the stage it's to, it's, it's to get on base it's like right. look we don't need you to hit a home run we just need you to kick things off we need you to get hit a single maybe a double steal a base here's the thing what you've just done with that makes me so happy we're going with the batting order allegory yes. sort of connection this whole time that yep. that really that works well and that's what it is i think with some of these songs like you might not i mean everything in its right place i think is an example of a song i actually really love it's probably one of my favorites on the album but you could argue it's not one of the top three or whatever it's sure. not necessarily the best so that's the other way artists come at it so you've got like the springsteen and cobain camp of let's kick the album off with the best song an album of great songs kick it off with the best and then there's this this school of thought of like start with an intro-ish you know sort of uh really good song but but warm into the the, the heavy hitters mm-hmm. exactly in the, in the heart of the lineup and i think another song that could kind of be looked at as an intro to the sounds you're going to be hearing um, is is only shallow by my bloody Valentine. So yeah. this is an album that was pretty revolutionary for its time in terms of what it did with guitar music. In a time where people thought everything that could be done with a guitar has been done before, my bloody Valentine comes around and they introduce just these walls and walls and layers of guitar sound. And Only Shallow is probably one of the most straight-ahead rock songs on the album. However, you still get introduced to these layers of fuzz and guitar. It's interesting to note, it starts off with that quick drum beat, and then it busts into that huge riff. Yeah, I was reading something about this album, and they're like, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine sounds normal for all of one second when that drum hits. And then you're just crushed by the guitar. That's a really interesting take on it. I'd never thought of it that way. And and it's interesting to note that it's an album where drums are not in the forefront. The drumming on on uh, Loveless is it there's nothing wrong with it. It it just it does its job, so to speak. And I think only shallow falls in a little bit. It's not in a way that's nefarious, so don't get me wrong, but it falls a little bit into the camp of of a little misleading as an opener. Because you hear only shallow and like you said, it kicks in with that drum, and it has a sort of um, definitely more of a driving, straight-ahead rock sound. And then as you work your way through tracks two, three, and four, the songs get a little bit more obtuse, hard to like come at from a pop sensibility. And Only Shallow is probably maybe the catchiest or top three catchiest songs on the album. So it's interesting. So with someone like, and I can't remember his name from My Bloody Valentine, Kevin uh, something. Yeah, it's Kevin something. Um in coming into that album, it's interesting that given the statement it seems he was trying to make with it, he still, you know, played a little bit to what he, the sensibilities, maybe the yeah. idea is like, if we want to get people to listen, we got to start off with something that's at least a little appealing off the bat. And I think that is something that even the Cobains and Springsteens of the world were probably had in the back of their minds where they're like, we need to hook people early. Yeah. We, we got to, you know, once they're invested, they'll listen to everything else. Like, I, I need that one song that's going to get people to stick around. And I think that is just a general idea about album openers in general, is this is my best shot at getting people to listen to more. And you know what's interesting is that that idea has developed over time. And I think that as the album has become more and more of a thing through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I think, honestly, it peaked through those four decades, through the 21st century. Um, 
but you have bands like earlier on, like the Beatles, for example. And I feel like when I thought about the Beatles, openers never jump right out to me. I'm never thinking, right. but you know what? As I looked back, I realized Come Together is an opener on a Beatles album. Back in the USSR, Sgt. Pepper, Hard Day's Night, Help. Those are all openers on albums. For some reason, and I'm not sure if I can put my finger on why, they don't feel the same. It doesn't feel like an opener in the same sense. Uh, I think Sgt. Pepper's the one that's closest because it feels like it's kicking off this concept. Yeah, I noted Help and A Hard Day's Night in mine, and it's interesting because... No come together, huh? Oh, I, 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 that too, but in particular, A Hard Day's Night and Help because they're both the name of the album. Right. And it's interesting that that is the first song, is, is the titular track. Well, I think in some ways, A Hard Day's Night is like the ultimate opener, and, and I hadn't thought about it this way, but... That opening chord, that, yeah. that first like chord that musicians through the ages have like tried to figure out who's playing what. Oh, Paul's playing a different note than than the chord actually is. Um, that is really interesting. And what's interesting to note is that that is an early album by them, which is actually kind of half movie soundtrack album. And and I wonder how much they were actually thinking about the idea of openers. I feel like the Beatles, with the exception of basically Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Pepper, I don't feel like they gave as much thought to track listing, which is interesting. And I think this could maybe be a product uh, of its time, though, where things were more singles-driven and not as much album-driven. They basically helped usher in this era of an album, and I don't think that was something that was really thought of. I think... They kind of invented the like that whole notion of like doing rock for the album. I mean, you think through the openers, like they're all good songs. Taxman, uh, Drive My Car, then you have, you know... Uh, Back in the USSR is a good opener. I feel like there is something that they're doing there where they're like figuring they, they kind of know how to kick an album off. Maybe they didn't perfect the art of the opener. But again, how can you argue with results like, I mean, like like Come Together is an incredibly good song. Hard yeah. Day's Night Help are all-time you know famous songs. I don't yeah. know. Something feels different about the way the Beatles did it, I they guess. They do, and it's interesting because I don't think back, and I'm, like when I think of them, I don't immediately identify a Hard Day's Night or Help as an opener. Really the only one that I do is come together. That's the yeah. one where I'm like, that's that's the opener at Abbey Road. All the other ones I'm like, oh yeah, like that is the opener. You know what else screws They're not with... iconic openers is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it's interesting that they did so much for the what an album would mean for rock, but it does seem like they were doing different things with the idea of a first track. And I think part of it for me is like a lot of these songs are hits I heard before they were on the album. So for example for the longest time, the opening to Abbey Road screwed with me because I was so used to the track list on Beatles 1, which goes track 24, something, track 25, come together. On Abbey Road, it opens with come together, then goes with something. And so when I first like heard that for the first several times, it threw me off because it's the opposite of what I was used to. Anyways, it's... And, and I, 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 that leads me to another interesting point of a few Led Zeppelin songs that I want to talk about yeah. with their openers is... I think a lot of people hear Led Zeppelin just on the radio a bunch, or they hear them in a different context than just albums. But you got the Guitar Army warming up on Zeppelin Four. Yeah, Black Dog. Yep. Kicking off. Have you heard them Led describe Zeppelin it 4. that way? I have heard that. Yeah, and it's cool to, to think of it that way, and it actually is a, a a pretty perfect opener for that album. Yeah, and it's interesting. Because Black Dog, as a song in general, even for Zeppelin, it's kind of a weird song. Because it's it's all call and response. Yeah. There's there's or not all. There's the chorus where he's going, "Hey baby," that whole part where the instruments are under him too. But for the most part, that song is all vocal, 
instruments, like vocal than instruments. And it's interesting how it starts because you think of that song and what you think of first usually is Robert Plant coming in with Hey Hey Mama, said the way you move, whatever, that whole line. But really what you hear first when you put the album on is the guitar is like wow, sort of wow, warming wow, up. Wow, wow. Yeah, yep. like them like kind of getting ready to play. It's interesting. Uh, Zeppelin brought heat with a lot of their openers. They did. Whole lot of love. Yeah. That riff to open up Zeppelin 2. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, that's then good. on Zeppelin 3, you get Immigrant Song. The Immigrant Song might be the ultimate example of just a banger rock song to kick off an album. It is, and I think it is also we can now categorize that in the camp I invented two minutes ago of misleading openers. Because with what you get with Led, with Led Zeppelin 3 is a lot of acoustic that's right. sort of balladry stuff that they had not that's really right. tried a whole lot of. Immigrant song sounds like something that would be on like physical graffiti yeah. borderline. You know what I mean? It has yeah. that like dark it sounds kinda like wanton song like wanton yeah. song or however you pronounce it. Yeah, wanton yeah. song. Wanton, yeah. Um with that sort of that the octave riff that they're doing. Um It is misleading. And I, what starts off Zeppelin one? Good times, bad times. Right? Good times, bad times. Another yeah. with John Bonham's like triplets on yeah. the drums. And then song remains the same to kick off Houses of the Holy. So like they they're a band who I think understood what it meant to have a a really good opener. While they might not have been their best songs, they were important for what the album would be, and I think they just understood how to kick things off. Song Remains the Same is an interesting case where I think that's the first time out of the fir the first albums they came out with. So like you said, with the first one, you get Good Times, Bad Times. Second, you get Whole, whole Lot of Love. Third, you got Immigrant Song. Fourth, you got Black Dog. All are iconic, immediately recognizable, hyper-famous Led Zeppelin songs. Song Remains the Same is not the case. Song Remains the Same is actually kind of a different... And honestly, I actually... When I'm listening to Zeppelin's catalog, when I like go back and do a Zeppelin phase, I kind of actually am a little refreshed by it being this song that I don't hear as much That's on right. the radio and it's kicking it off. That's right. Song Remains the Same is a really cool song. It is. I think it works very well as just an opener. And it's that song is pretty crazy. It's yeah. so fast. Yeah, like it the, is. the opening of the yeah, that whole it's thing great. They're and doing that's, at the why, that's why I think it's it works so well as an opener. And then they go, they slow it way down. Yep. Yeah. And then what do you have? What's the next album? Uh, Physical Houses? Graffiti starts off with uh, with Custard, Custard Pie, Pie, which is an all time weird. You would you would think that that al album would have opened with Cashmere. But Cashmere, and that's or Trample Underfoot, or something like that. But what you get with Trample Underfoot and Cashmere is is a, a powerful back to back. I think in the four and five spots. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting to see what they did with track listing. Zeppelin's a good example. Another good example that I want to jump in with um, is the Rolling Stones. So they had in the stretch of I think sixty eight through seventy two, which I think if you talk to any like major Stones fan, that's like the period for the Rolling Stones because you got Let It Bleed, uh, Beggar's Banquet. Um, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street. And so if you look at which one came out, is it Beggar's Banquet first? I think yeah. it was. So you got Beggar's Banquet, which opens with Sympathy for the Devil. Then you got Let It Bleed, which opens with Gimme Shelter. You could argue that's the Rolling Stones' greatest song ever. Then you get Sticky Fingers in, I think, 71, which opens with Brown Sugar. Mm -hmm. And then Exile on Main Street opens with Rocks Off, which I think is probably the least recognizable of those songs, but the perfect sort of emblematic intro to those to that album. I listened to Gimme Shelter a couple times just today in preparation for this, and I'm always struck at that vocal performance in the back half Oh yeah, uh, by the female vocals. I don't, I don't know what her name is, but it's amazing. Comes down to preparedness. We've, we've botched a couple names. We have, we have. But th I think you could argue Gimme Shelter is an example of a song 
whose opener or, or whose album's opener doesn't the rest of the album doesn't live up to the to the opener to the heights set by the opener. Well, because of those four albums you just mentioned, um, Let It Bleed's my least favorite of those because it's all downhill after Give Me Shelter. Uh, I love a lot of those songs. You know what? I could agree, and I think that. The middle of that album is pretty strong with Let It Bleed, Midnight yeah. Rambler, You Got the Silver. That's a great Keith song. But I think you're right. that it, it, It's also a little misleading from what you're going to get because then you go into Love in Vain and Country Honk. Country Honk I love too, though, because it's like basically a honky-tonk women, but the acoustic version of it. Um, I, I can agree. And Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed, Full Transparency, which is a phrase I hate and I'm sorry I used. <laughs> but in all honesty, their albums I confuse with one another all the time because... They came out one year after the other, I think 68, 69. They, to me, could almost be like side A and side B of the same album. They, they sound like, and they both start off sort of deceivingly because with Let It Bleed, you have Gimme Shelter, which is obviously like an instantly recognizable all-time rock song. With, with Beggar's Banquet, you start with Sympathy for the Devil, which is, um, and then it moves into, is it Dear Doctor after that? Yeah. Which is like this kind of like hokey country song, which right. I love. It's really funny, but it's totally misleading. And I think what happens is as a fan of the Stones who comes in and you're like, okay, I'm going to do my deep dive on the Rolling Stones. I'm going to get into the essential albums. You pop on Beggar's Banquet. You've heard all the great things. You hear Sympathy for the Devil. You're like, ooh, this is going to be this like kind of, ex- not experimental, but it's the Stones exploring lyrics in a new weird way. And it's this longer song with like kind of a concept. But then it drops into into Dear Doctor and songs like that. Or is it No Expectations? It's No Expectations. Those songs, they're like more acoustic, though. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the, the songs right after Sympathy, are, it's a whole different thing. Yeah, the the category of misleading openers is really interesting. And one that I wanted to highlight, it's misleading for me, is London Calling by The Clash. Interesting. To kick off London Calling. So when I was younger, what I knew about The Clash was that they were a punk band. Right. Like a more of like a political punk band. So when I heard London Calling, I was like, yeah, this fits. This This is, you know, right up their alley. And then you get into songs... You get brand new Cadillac. Like Jimmy Jazz and Rudy Can't Fail. Well, just look at those first. Guns of Brixton. Like these songs that are more like reggae and just totally different than the straight ahead punk that you might have been used to from their first album, their second album, or even what you're getting on the song London Calling. When look at what you get as those first five tracks. You go London Calling first. You're like, okay, I think I've got a handle on this. Brand New Cadillac is like kind of like an old-timey-ish bluesy sort of song. And then Jimmy Jazz, obviously, is pretty jazzy. And then you got Hateful and Rudy Can't Fail. Like you said, it's a totally... You're right, that's a, actually a really good example of misleading. Yeah. But I'm so used to that track list now that t- when you said that, I was like, oh, I guess I could see it. Like, now I'm looking at the track list totally. Yeah. Like, compare a song like Lost in the Supermarket, which is like early 1980s like disco electro pop almost. And compare that to London Calling. They're totally different songs. Really, the only ones that kind of match up are a song like Death or Glory. I guess you could argue Spanish Bombs to an extent. And... That's the Clampdown is kind of... Yeah, like that's kind of it. Those are more straight-ahead, sort of poppy-ish. And that was something that, that struck st- stuck out to me when I first started listening to this album. I was prepared for songs all like London Calling, and what I got was something very different. And I actually like a lot of the other songs on this album better than than the song one called, which is an amazing song. 
that ends up being part of the result and you wonder again it's like it goes back to the discussion of is there a logic there a certain type of thinking that the band is is using when they say okay london calling outside of also being kind of very much an intro track and obviously it's it's the name of the album there's some themes that they're setting up there but is it also does it come down to this sounds more like what people are expecting and that, that could be it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's a part of it. it you know who yeah, else I, I wanted to bring up, which he's interesting in terms of openers, is David Bowie, who we've talked about at great lengths on the on the podcast, but um, some interesting stuff with his openers. So you got um, with, uh, with Ziggy Stardust, you have five years as the opener. It's I love that song, and I, to me it almost feels like a closer in a weird way. It doesn't way. feel like an opener. It doesn't. It actually works really well as an opener because it feels so different. It has that it has sort of the anthemic feel of something that would like kind of be the closing to an album. But I guess what you could argue against that with is that he's setting up I guess the story of that is they have five years to live left on Earth. And that's what Ziggy how the, the like that's the setting that Ziggy Stardust is set in. Another one with Bowie that's interesting is um changes on Hunky Dory. I think um that's an interesting one. I think that's actually more emblematic of what he's doing throughout that album it has that sort of um you know piano heavy sort of a lot of horns on it that album's hunky dory is a really interesting album in terms of the sounds he's bringing to the table because it's definitely one of his more i feel like it's in that period where he's doing some straight ahead rock things but the compositions on that album are different i think changes is a good example of what he's up to yeah that's that's definitely another great opener from bowie um one of the other categories that I want to talk about with openers is the ones that are they're good songs and they're good openers but the rest of the album isn't great right and I think one of the bands that really is emblematic of this is ACDC so when you look <laughs> at their career they made it a point to start off every album with like their lead single or at least like a like a great quote unquote unquote great song by their standards so when you look at an album like, I mean, Highway to Hell is a decent album. It's maybe their most most complete. I think it's really good. I, I like it. You know, they start that off with Highway to Hell. Yep. You look at, I think the perfect example is For Those About to Rock. <laughs> you start that album off with For Those About to Rock, We Salute You, which is just an over-the-top song even by yeah. their standards <laughs> which are dude they set themselves pretty lofty standards and surpassed them. And, and then the rest of the album that album sucks <laughs> that album's really bad like i haven't listened to for those about it's rock. bad it's, it's <laughs> not good i've heard that song obviously. and like that song i enjoy because it's so over the top and it's like kind of silly and fun the rest of the album sucks right because i love highway to hell and i think obviously that's a great song to open it but i think highway to hell is ACDC reaching a peak where like they that album has basically one song that's sort of suspect and that's Get It Hot. The rest of it I I actually really love. Yeah, and if you look throughout the rest of their career, they kind of kept that same formula. Like if you look at The Razor's Edge from 1990, that was the album that had Thunderstruck on it. Did, can that, I guess what song opened it? Yeah. Was it Thunderstruck? Yes, you are correct, sir. <laughs> High Voltage starts with it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Their first album, interesting that it didn't start with TNT. That's maybe a little bit of an exception. Yeah, I think yeah. you definitely would say TNT is the bigger hit. You, Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at Dirty Deeds. They start with Dirty Deeds. They do. You look at Let There Be Rock. 
they actually don't start with Let There Be Rock on that one. But you get the picture. <laughs> like, they start off their albums with a certain type of song. Like, Back in Black starts with Hell's Bells. Yeah. Not Back in Black, which is interesting, but still, Hell's Bells is a crazy popular song. I think if you were to get Back in Black as a record, I'm just looking at the way the track list splits up now on Spotify, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine Back in Black then starts side two. It, it it's would. track six. It would. Hell's Bells is actually a really interesting opener for them. That's one of the biggest, most anthemic sounding things they've done to that point. I really like that song. I do too. I really like Hell's not? Bells. I'm not, a, I'm not like the biggest fan of Back in Black in general because I'm not... It's obviously it's really good. Some people think it's their best album. I disagree with those people. I think that's Highway to Hell. Um, but yeah, they you like you say they ACDC doesn't mince words, and it's it's actually fitting yeah. for what they're doing. They're like, here's this song that's gonna kick it off, and maybe the rest of the album won't really live up to this. Yep. But you're gonna you're gonna love the hell out of this first <laughs> song. Um, so I wanted to talk about. So, so we we've talked about a lot of older albums and like classic songs and albums that have these really iconic tracks that kick off albums. Right. Uh, let's talk about 21st century, sure. more modern stuff. Are album openers still as important in an age where people say the album is dying, it's more singles-based? Are album openers still as iconic and important? It's a really good question. So I'm trying to think of some good examples. So if you look at... Say Arctic Monkeys, for an example, or The Strokes. I'm trying to think of bands that would be actively trying to do something like that. With The Strokes, like you have Whatever Happened on Room on Fire. You have Is This It on Is This It, which is an interesting case. That's not by any stretch probably one of the most memorable songs on the album. I actually really like it, but it, I don't know if you would say it's one of the more memorable. That one is, that opener is kind of one that eases you in. It's it kind is. of like an everything in its right place by Radiohead type of thing where it's just like, it's got this vibe about it, and you're like, we're going to ease you in. This is like a typical intro track. That's what it feels like, and then when you look back, and, and when you I'm looking at it right now, is this, it's two and a half minutes. It's a song proper. It's like, it is a yeah. song, but it totally does have that vibe of like, okay, we're getting ready for the album, and then it almost feels like the modern age really kicks it off. Right. Um, and you look at Arctic Monkeys, I think you can say Brian Storm's a pretty damn Brian good example Storm, of an awesome opener. I'm going to, uh, hot take, another hot take, Brian Storm is the immigrant song of the 21st century. This is a fast-paced banger. It is. It's awesome. It is. And I think where it differs from immigrant song is that it is actually a, an indication of what's to come True. as opposed to yep. not. It's not like, so after Brian Storm, we're not getting Tangerine and acoustic no, songs. No, I'm just I'm but, but I agree with, yeah. in the terms of like they're both like three minutes or under songs that are just like fast-paced like fast guitar heavy guitar it's interesting that it's the first song of their second album so when you hear um you know whatever people say i am that's what i'm not you View know from the afternoon is a great opener really good opener but say you are an arctic monkeys fan back in when did it come out oh seven the second album yeah favorite worst nightmare and you're like let's see what Ar arctic monkeys is up to now they bring their fastball with Brian Storm. I mean, in every way, they're playing as fast as they've ever played, and it's these just really angular sort of, like, riffs. And it, it actually, it, it sets a tone for the different sound you're going to get on Favorite Worst Nightmare, where a lot of those riffs, the guitar stuff they're doing, it's like, I it's like, it's a, the Phrygian or, like, Mixolydian mode or whatever. It's these weird sort of ways they're writing songs. They have that, like, kind of... I don't know, half-step sound about the riffs where, like, the the chord changes are a little bit different. You can hear it. It's different than what they're doing on uh, on uh, whatever people say I am. Yeah. And Brian Storm's the perfect way to kick it off. 
So a couple 21st century, early, early 21st century bands sure. that I think are probably still drawing on the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s themes of like crafting an album are uh, Modest Mouse and The Shins to an extent. So if you look at a song like Third Planet by, by Modest Mouse yep. on Moon in Antarctica, this is kind of, that's like the single from that album. And it kicks off the album really nicely. Not necessarily an indication of what you're going to get the rest of the time out. Because there's some longer songs on the, on that record that are more drawn out. And this is like a three-minute pop Modest Mouse song. And then you look at something like Caring is Creepy by The Shins on Oh Inverted World. Like, this is another one where it's like, okay, we're bringing like more of a pop song to the forefront here before I, we dive into everything else. I, I do feel like Carrying is Creepy is more indicative. Oh, it is. Like that, Oh, Inverted World's a pretty damn catchy album. What I'm trying to think about is like some rap albums. So I'm thinking, we, we talked about Dark Fantasy. I'm trying to think of Kendrick now, like what he does with openers. So you have Wesley's Theory on To Pimp a Butterfly. You have Shireen, a.k.a. Master Splinter's Daughter. Which is like kind of an intro. And, and that's, well, that's like a, con. I think the, the the idea of a concept album yeah. song opener is really interesting and like Good Kid Mad City, that's kind of like the, the story opener. What's funny about Wesley's theory though is that it almost feels like a bit of an outlier on that album. I love yeah. that song, but it introduces the themes of the album in a very interesting sort of roundabout way, because what he's getting at is like the Wesley Snipes tax evasion um, and he's addressing race in sort of a strange way, almost from the top down. You know what I mean? He's giving it this different view. Um those are interesting as openers. And then, like, with Kanye West, you have Dark Fantasy. On Sight is a good example of a good opener mm-hmm. uh, from Yeezus because mm-hmm. you got um, an album full of abrasive sounds. And, and On Sight is, like, is totally a mission statement for what Kanye is about to do with that album. It just is so aggressive, and, and, and Kanye comes at it with a, a bunch of, like, fire. And then Ultra Light Beam yeah. on, on Life of Pablo yeah. is a really strong opener. Kanye always kind of... Brings the brings the heat on openers. He does, yeah. I think he does. I think he does more so than Kendrick. But again, it's it's. I think part of the nature of what Kendrick's doing, where Kanye's openers feel like really powerful, strong individual songs. Kendrick's feel like part of a, a larger thing. Yeah, no, for sure. More or like they're they're good songs, but they feel like they're more there to serve a purpose. If that makes sense. Yep. I think that's what you'd expect from Kendrick. Yeah. Uh, from the 2010s. I think maybe it's because we don't have years of of kind of built up history with with these songs yet. I want to say that there's maybe less that are coming across as iconic uh, openers. However, two that are that stand out to me that are kind of close to my heart are "The Wild Hunt" by Tallest Man on Earth, uh, and then "A More Perfect Union" by by Titus Andronicus, which draws on a lot of those same Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen themes that we talked about with Thunder Road and Like a Rolling Stone, where, like, these really um, emotional lyrics and, like, really starts the album off with a bang. And, yeah. and it's giving you its themes right away. A More Perfect Union is totally in that vein, and it's interesting that you're saying, like, oh, the 21st century, it seems harder to pin down, and it's almost like that album um, and the monitor by Tedis Andronicus. It that album does a lot of hearkening back to old Big themes time. and old musical, not tropes, but you know, like he's doing a lot of Springsteenish stuff. He's doing like this Heartland rock, like big sweeping, like 
themes of, of coming up in America, what it means to be this young man who's confused and like figuring himself out. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the other one you brought up? Uh, the Wild Hunt by oh, Tallest Man on Earth. That's just a, a great song on a great album. Yeah. See, like that's the difference too. I think like those are two that are very dissimilar in their purposes. Like the Wild mm. Hunt, it does set a tone, but it, it, in one way, it's just like one of several perfect songs on that album. Yeah. And then a more perfect union sets up, you know, um, a real like a, a concept album. Yeah. I wanted to bring up some of the. Uh, the emo bands we've been getting into, I wanted to see what, what you thought about some of their openers. So with like Pine Grove, you open up their new album with, well, I mean, if you want to call them emo, which we can, I think, for the sure. sake of this, you open with Old Friends. Um, Modern Baseball, with, on You're Gonna Miss It All, you open with uh, Fine Great. With um, Sorority Noise, you start with Blist, which falls into that kind of intro-ish feel, but I was looking today, it's longer than Corrigan is. Mm. And then you look at uh, Rory Shield on their first album. Do you? How do you feel like bands like that are doing stuff with, with openers? I don't think that those songs... I, I don't think they're trying anything particular with the openers that they're doing there. Those are great songs. Or I love Christmas those songs. Card by Joyce Manor, yeah. I don't think those are special as openers. Yeah, well, they don't necessarily stand out as like the openings i think the exception is blissed off of joy departed it does feel totally like an like an intro to me um but i think with that as the exception i agree with you they come across as sort of just it's sort of the wild hunt thing it's just one of many yeah, good songs that will, that will sound like this right and it's not even that, just that it's there like fine great is an awesome song of course christmas card is one of my favorites on never hung over again but those are albums where it does seem like the trend now if we're going to be looking at emo and the punk scene as one of the emerging scenes in rock that's doing interesting things, it doesn't seem like maybe the layout of albums or the intro track is is of as much importance in that scene. I yeah, I was just going to say I don't think it's I don't think it's in that genre's nature to care as much about things like that. Maybe not. Also, these albums are way shorter, so it's like we don't really need a mission statement for a 20-minute album like Joyce Manor. But I think the argument is that with every first song, you're setting a tone no matter the length, no matter what you're trying to actually do. I just feel like, you know, it, it, I, I actually agree with you, but what, what I'm playing devil's advocate with is that I think, you know, at some point they had to pick a first song. Yeah. I just wonder what goes into the decision. Is it like, you know, uh, with Fine Great, you have kind of an immediately catchy one, but that's what you get with all of modern baseball. So I don't know. It's just weird to think about because we're applying these concepts in these different buckets of what the opener means to these different eras and these different artists. I, I don't know. Do you think it's too sort of like we're shrugging it off too much to say, oh, it's just a, a, a random decision? Well, I think with more time and the more we live with these albums and the more that they have a historical context, these things will start to, these patterns will start to show themselves more. Because, I mean, if you even look back to, like, early punk albums, like, if you look at uh, The Clash in, in, in their self-titled debut, I mean, you're getting a song, Janie Jones, I mean, it is that an iconic opener? No. Is it a great song? Yeah. It's probably one of the best on that album, but it's not like oh, like like I had to look it up just now to remember it. Right. So like I think you're gonna get kind of the same thing. Like the opener of uh, the sec of Nevermind the Bollocks is Holidays in the Sun. Do you always think about that as like no. a great or iconic or memorable opener? No. And I think just certain genres that's gonna happen or certain albums that's gonna happen. Yeah. 
it doesn't mean not every album necessarily has like a great or remarkable opener it's not necessarily what they're trying to do right you know what i mean and actually but i think like with some of those albums like rory shield on forgettable and um and find great on uh you're gonna miss it all those are two of my favorite songs on those records here's another thing though like so i'm thinking about other late 2000s early 2010s what about like uh in the flowers by uh animal collective that is a song that blends introducing the album's themes it blends intro with like this quiet opening and it blends that explosion of sounds that drops you right in all into one song in the flowers i think is an underrated all-time great opener and song on that album yeah and it gets a little overlooked because again it's that intro factor that i that i'm talking about what happens when you get into these albums is Again, we're conditioned to hear them as this like sort of it's wetting your appetite, it's welcoming welcoming you into this world and to what the band is trying to do with the album. And it's sometimes not until you hear it out of context that you're like, oh shit, like that's an awesome song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the flowers is a great example of a, of an opener, like that, like you said, it, it explodes, it, it, that, it just blows up into that propulsive sort of thing, and, it, and you're like, okay, I'm now. And it does actually what you want an opener to do, where you're like, I feel now like I'm in, mm-hmm. I'm now in Meriwether Post Pavilion. Yep. Um, and I was, you know, I was, I was also thinking about a totally different type of thing, but like MGMT, Time to Pretend, yeah. kicks off, right? That's the yeah, opener it for. Is, it is. And, um, you know, that's another example where it's a different type of thing than what In the Flowers is doing. That's basically just a straight ahead pop song. I feel like stands on its own. You could maybe have moved it, but to me, it feels like. A little bit mission statement ish for uh, for MGMT. They're kind of they're joking around. It's like we're gonna have fun and make some music, but the whole song is tongue in cheek. It is. Yeah. They have a sense of humor about themselves. Before we wrap up, uh, do you have any album openers that you love, but you honestly don't want to listen to the rest of the album after? I have. I do have one off the top of my oh, head. Oh man, that. I hadn't thought about it. No, what's yours? I, I mine is it's pretty easy for me actually, and this might be unbelievable to some people. It's someone who considers themselves a big fan and knowledgeable about music. I don't think Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth is anything special. I think it's overrated. I don't get it. However, Teenage Riot is an all-time great song to kick that off. I love that song. I don't have the patience for the rest of the album, and I won't listen to it. But I will listen to Teenage Riot on repeat. Very interesting. I don't know that I have an example off the top of my head, but I would be remiss without bringing up another good one, which is So What off of Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue. This we is, didn't even touch on jazz, this a whole is, different type yeah, of thing. Yeah, this is the uh, the part of the show where we talk about jazz. That's why we saved it for the end. And we lord over all the listeners. This is why we saved it for the end. <laughs> I think it's a good Hey, what about uh, on, on In a Silent Way, where there's just two tracks? <laughs> That's right. An opener and a closer. An opener and a closer. So, yeah. but no, I'm trying to... I, I do want to talk about... I don't know if I have an example of one where like I never f- listened to the album at the end. That might be a good example right there. Yeah, I um, think Teenage Riot. Good. I haven't that. I haven't listened to that album a whole lot. I don't know if I have one off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, I feel tell like, you what, you can tweet it out later this week. That's maybe what I'll have to do. This is a perfect, I think, wrap up here. Um, so let us know what some of your favorite tracks are, favorite opening tracks. Uh, we can get into a conversation on Twitter. You know, Jake and I have had some good music conversations with a few of the listeners already. Big shout to Josh, for big friend of the pod. He's been tweeting at us. Uh, so you can follow us at level4 underscore media. 
you can check out our blog at level4media.net. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, if you tweet at us this week, I will give you an album that I think represents you as a person. How about Ooh, that? There's, that's an interesting incentivizer right yep. there. Also known as, as an incentive. Um, <laughs> but saying incentivizer sounds better. I hope people will, will reach out and, and talk about this. I think it, the idea of track lists and what they mean is really interesting. It doesn't have to be openers alone. Like, what's your favorite third track on an album? What's your favorite closer? I, I, I'm actually really interested to hear because, to me, it, it uh, is one of the most interesting things about an album is not just the songs that are on it. It's it's how they're sequenced and, yep. like, what that means about what the band's trying to say. Because think about any of these albums that we just talked about. They're totally different works of art if the track listing is different. Because right. we've become so accustomed to how it's ordered right now, it'd be a totally different thing if that wasn't what we knew. Right, like picture Led Zeppelin four starting with Battle of Evermore. Yeah, it's weird. It, it doesn't or make stairway. any sense. Yeah, it doesn't like make that, any sense. Yeah. It, well, to me now, maybe it would then. If like yeah. if that's what they had done, maybe it would make sense. Is that's that right. part, is that another part of the argument? Are we overthinking it in that what really happens is some of these bands just luck into they pick an opener and it becomes iconic over time. Maybe that's why we're struggling to pick ones from from the current decade we're in. Right. Uh, maybe with with more experience and more time, these albums will have more clear-cut, you know, sequences, and it'll seem more obvious with time. Yeah. I don't know. For sure. Yeah, let us know what you think. Tweet at us, and I will give you an album for who your Twitter persona represents. I'm going to do it right after this. All right. I'll, I'll do it for everyone. I hope I get flooded. I hope there's, like, too many. That'd be awesome. It would be. I'm interested to see. Yeah, it'll be great. All right, I have no such promise, but with future podcasts, I'll have I'll have an incentivizer for you. All right, see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. You shouldn't spark that up again. The 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 your your Zippo. That okay. Now this is a solid mic. I hope it picks up the crackling of the fire. I think it will. Uh, I almost want to play it back now, but well, we'll, you know what? we'll hear it after. Yeah, we'll hear it. One thing I wanted to bring up. So every other week at work, we get lunch like delivered to us. We call it like Takeout Tuesday or whatever. Nothing. It's a fun name. Nothing. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. Nothing sparks like a bullshit small talk conversation at work like weather, March Madness brackets, or the free fucking food that you're getting at work. Oh, t- chicken tenders from the back room. Oh, these are great. Well, it's easy to talk about. We got a little buffalo tenders here. Oh, is this ranch or is that blue cheese? Like that's the dude. It's the easiest. It's bread and butter of small it's talk. It's so that easy. Kind of stuff. And then you have Ian and I talking about like. The, like the new Pitchfork website and like yeah. <laughs> if album reviews are still important in right. today's culture and then you have people coming any salad dressing? Yeah. <laughs> we like, do we get treated pretty well at my work. We get uh, uh lunch delivered once a week. Wow. Every Wednesday. Spoiled rotten. We are spoiled rotten. And and it used to be er- twice every week. Cutting back, huh? 
They, they got to make cutbacks, I guess. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Better, yeah. better the the lunch than than some jobs. Than <laughs> <laughs> some livelihoods. Yeah, <laughs> definitely better. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's actually has to do with the growth. But I don't know if I want to be talking about that with <laughs> no a, one knows, a hot mic. No one knows where you work. So That's it's true. Fine. They could easily find out where you work. It would not be hard. No. Um, you should write a glass door review about the lunch situation. I would give I'd give an awesome review. Probably. Deter people from. We only get lunch delivered once a week. Don't bother applying. <laughs> this place basic sucks. <laughs> Not the case. Uh, all right, you ready? Yeah, I think so. All right, three, two, one. <laughs>